0: Well, good morning, Reforming, and welcome to you, friends, if you're new or visiting with us this morning. This is the weekend of our church camp, and so some of us are at church camp, and some of us are here at Reforming House, and we love it that we don't have the doors closed of our church building so the church can still gather for gathered worship. Welcome this morning to Gathered Worship. My name is Russ. It's my privilege to serve as a pastor of Reforming Church, especially, particularly to open the scriptures with you and see the grand, glorious, gracious realities of who Jesus is toward us, so how we can be toward one another. Uh, I do hope you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 13, is where we are this morning. Um, That has been read, and uh, it's great for us to read the Bible and hear it preached into our minds and our hearts. By the Spirit's power, He changes us. Jesus changes everything. So let's pray that He would this morning. As we hear his voice in the scriptures, we hear his word preached. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have saved us from sin, death, and judgment, and we now face no condemnation in Christ Jesus. By your Spirit, you have turned our hearts towards you, our attention, our focus, our worship. We're grateful. And now we pray, with thankful lives for that, that you would turn our attention towards one another and help us to look into and think deeply upon what it means to be a church that is one-anothering for everyone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I experienced some suffering in pastoral ministry. James writes in his letter, James 1, that we all experience trials of various kinds. But for my suffering in that particular season, as I was experiencing it, I also wanted to learn from it. As leaders, of course, we're constant learners, aren't we? The word disciple means learner. Disciples are lifelong learners. And I was at that time tired of learning from the usual fast food leadership dishes served over-the-counter of the Christian Leadership Industrial Complex, where it's all about how to analyze the data and metrics of your church and so forth. And besides, I'd have enough pastoral ministry to see that such leadership was more about counting numbers to make someone feel successful, or a church feel successful. But real leadership is about suffering as a servant. Of course, it's because our Lord and Savior, the Chief Shepherd Leader, is the suffering servant and he is the leader par excellence. But in my season of suffering that comes and goes, I also wanted to look around for those who he has placed as leaders to learn from them as well, to learn from a leader who had suffered. I think for me, I can't learn from people who haven't suffered. Not in my leadership. In the season that I was reading and I needed. I needed to see someone who would suffered in history and I read history and church history and, and read those who suffered and went before and I found it so helpful. But I needed also someone who was still alive on this planet who had suffered in contemporary Western Christian ministry. And that's when I discovered a guy called Ray Orland. More importantly, of course, I needed leaders around me who I knew personally and I've learned a lot from them. Um, I won't name them because those things are personal, private, and helpful conversations I've been having as I suffer, as I serve, and regularly meet with for help. Their friends that know everything about me and I them, but in the season that I needed, I needed someone who had been through a particular type of suffering that I had, and I just Googled and discovered Ray Orland's life and ministry. It was like I was reading my own situation. I don't know Ray personally, he's American, he's not really famous, he's not a famous American pastor-preacher, perhaps White's hadn't heard of him, but I was reading him on pastoral ministry and it helped me learn as a fellow sufferer. I say all this because I wish to introduce Ray and the context of which he writes, which I'm about to quote, so you know where this is coming from. It's rare that in sermon introductions i entirely quote, my whole introduction is entirely quoted of someone else. It's it's usually much more particular and personal. But, but this quote, I just want to actually have as the start of this sermon, because it's a very short blog post I read a while ago, and it's always stuck with me. And this short blog post, I'll read it in its entirety, is all about the one another's I can't find in the New Testament. Ray wrote it, this little blog, entitled, The One Another's I Can't Find in the New Testament. So let me quote Ray Orland. Not my words, this is Ray Orland out. The beautiful one another commands of the New Testament are famous, but it is also striking to notice the one another's that do not appear there. For example, Sanctify one another, Humble one another, One another, scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, judge one another, run one another's lives confess one another's sins. The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty, and every non-gospel position sees us treat one another like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally in whatever we really believe vertically, Our relationships with one another reveal to us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe, our convictions as opposed to our opinions. It is possible for the gospel to remain at the shallow level of opinion, even sincere opinion, without penetrating to the deeper level of conviction. But when the gospel grips us down in our convictions, we embrace its implications wholeheartedly. Therefore, when we mistreat one another... Our problem is not a lack of surface niceness, but a lack of gospel depth. And what we need is not only better manners, but far more true faith. And then the watching world might start feeling that Jesus himself has come to town. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. End of the quote. Reforming Church, friends, biblical one-anothering begins to be real when, just like Ray Orland says in that little blog, biblical one-anothering begins to be real when we actually believe the gospel. That we actually believe we've been given grace in Christ. Because the starting point and ending point of the Christian life is always grace. We see this in Romans 12, verse 3. We have been given grace. Let's read verse 3. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, on this weekend of church camp, we know by the mercies of God, by the grace of God, we have been given everything in Jesus. It's a gift. The word grace means a gift. It's a free gift, undeserved favor. And Paul writes this phrase here, that we ought not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. In other words, we are to measure ourselves... And one another, not by shaming one another, not by belittling one another, not by scrutinizing one another, but by grace towards one another. And Paul uses that phrase, measure of faith. Now, that can be confusing, can't it? What does it mean, measure of faith? Some of us might think he's saying a quantity of faith, like perhaps... Uh, Someone else gets a greater quantity of faith than than I do. But that's actually not what the phrase means. Uh, The original word, metron pistios, pistos is faith in Greek, metron is where we get the word meter from. So it's not quantity of faith. It's rather, Paul is saying that by the faith given us, it's, it's rather a standard of measurement. That It's unmeasured in that sense, this meter of grace. Grace is not half grace, a little bit of grace. It's all grace. It's a gift or it's not. And so Paul is saying, by that measure of gift, that measure of grace, we've been all given of faith. We're all equal in God's sight. Isn't that extraordinary? That's amazing. That's amazing grace kind of news. Here Paul is showing us in a spectacular way which we can ourselves see now, that as recipients of grace, we can now have a grace-shaped reality that is more than the short-sighted, short-lived, unsatisfying world that we live in. Because you and I know this, you don't have to scratch beneath the surface of our world very much to see this. Our world does not live by grace, does it? Our world lives and breathes its murders up around I, its M.O., our world's MO is, is, is we need to measure up, that we just scrutinize one another, we look at one another, we need to measure up and do better and do, perform better and particularly perform better for me. Our world is really life's meat grinder and it doesn't work by grace. It chews us up and spits us out. Our world teaches us to do things that we can never do. It's a fantasy. Our world forgets, forgoes the grace of God we need and lives out and acts out this fantasy that life is about me. I'm the center of the world and the world revolves around me. And the practical problem of that is it's silly, but it's a myth. It's a myth we tell ourselves in the world. We're often so good at saying or asserting that we're on the right side of history in our world, we're so good at critiquing culture that has gone before us, or critiquing others, but we're never, in fact we're helpless and hopelessly hapless at self-reflection and understanding. Which is why we live and breathe the cultural smog that says, well we can think of ourselves more highly than we ought but for those who are God's people in Christ, recipients of grace, reforming church, and we now get to read with a sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Since we are saved by grace, we don't need to compare ourselves to one another. We don't need to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's what we need to hear. We need to hear this and heed this grace saves us, and Titus 2, verse 12, grace also changes us. The grace given to us in Christ renews our minds, changes our attitudes. And so we now think of ourselves differently when we look at one another. Of course, the world, with its individualism, often thinks more highly of ourselves and more than we ought And that means if that creeps into church and church culture, it's where we find people will rather tear one another down. Tearing down the church is not thinking like Jesus. Jesus at times, through his word, will correct and rebuke, teach and train the church. But to tear it down, to build ourselves up, rather than to build others up, that's thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought with that measure of faith, of grace unmeasured, means we also won't be serving others to show off or impress them. We don't need to. We have all the standing we need in Christ. Because the gospel of grace that saves us and gathers us for one another, means we are members now of one another. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, look at this phrase, individually members of one another. As we said this weekend at church camp in our booklets, uh, we looked in our booklets in our two sessions on Saturday at all the one another statements in the Bible. And they are there not just to speak against the individualism of our world, but to actually show a better vision of life for everyone. There are, depending how you count them, at least 59 commands. 59 commands to one another in the New Testament why do we need to be commanded this way? Because sometimes we find it unnatural in a sin-sick world. And what we need is supernatural speech in the Scriptures. In the closing statements of Romans alone, um, we see these verses. Romans 13 verse eight, "Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Romans 14 verse 13, Do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide to put never a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans 14 verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Romans 15 verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Notice how everyone is invited and included and important and we ought to express this locally. Where there are real relationships in church, we believe and belong to one another and we express this in the gifting that God gives in diversity, yes, individually, but also because we're members for one another in unity. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. As you look at this, we see this... This grace given us means we can actually use these gifts, same word, grace, gift, the gracing's we have, the gifting's we have, gifts are really people, to serve other people to one another in a church. This unity and diversity is beautiful. This is the part where we see membership of a church is important, not primarily because they get to sign up to serve or vote in a meeting but because I see myself and publicly declare I'm a member of this church. I want to commit to this church. This is my church. I'm one another here with these people. They know me and love me, and they're part of me. We are members of one another here. Now, you might think I've got not much to contribute. That's like saying I'm just a little toe, according to what Paul writes First Corinthians. By remembering God's economy, he loves the weak, he loves the little toe, and the little toe is needed on the body. If we were all to lose our little toes, I think we'd feel it. And being present and part of the body means everything. And as we look at one another, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and so we have these lists of things for different gifts to use in such a way. So prophecy in proportion to our faith. That in proportion to our faith, again, is, is, not, is not saying it's a measure of, you know, how much faith we get. The, the word proportion here has been translated, it's analogian, which is where we get the word analogy from. That's where the Reformers and the Reformation particularly had that phrase, analogy of faith, which means scripture interprets scripture. So we've got those scriptures we're teaching, a hard text of scripture. We're always thinking about what this text of scripture means in context of immediately, in the book, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible. And so that teaching, if prophecy or preaching, that should happen as we are testing that, like the Bereans test the preaching of the Word, with Scripture. Teachers of Scripture need to be able to know Scripture and to to test it with Scripture themselves, what they're saying. Romans 12, verse 7, If service in our serving, why who teaches in his teaching, 12 verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. That's very much one another activity. It's all about looking to the other to build them up, not to tear them down. Not to criticize them, but to self-reflect and to really help them rejoice. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. As I mentioned earlier, at the start of the sermon, leadership comes and we are a plurality of leaders in our church. In the Presbyterian church, leadership comes with seasons of suffering, which is seasons of discouragement, and you just want to quit. So why, why do this? And that's why the encouragement is for those who are leaders here, elders, board managers, group leaders, kids' church leaders, youth group leaders, leaders in our ministry of meals and cleaning, all those leaders... Lead with zeal because you're given grace to do so. I need to hear that. Leadership is hard, it's public, it's spotlighted and it's critiqued. It comes with costs. But remember, you have been given grace because the one highest, most true leader experienced all that and more at the cross. Then we read the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness Serving in mercy ministries, serving the poor, serving the needy, like on the winter night shelter in Bendigo or whatever ministry it is of our church, it's easy to become jaded. And again, as we look to one another and serve them with mercy ministry, we need grace and gospel cheerfulness. Because reforming church, coming to church is not like going to the movies. It's more like being part of a sporting team. Now this analogy is helpful. It's been used before. When you go to the movies, what happens? You go to the movies to be entertained. You go to the movies because it is actually, even though there's a bunch of people there, it is all about you being entertained. And as you go into the movie theater, you have the most comfortable chairs, the most comfortable environment, and you walk in just before the movie starts because you don't want to miss the you know you want to you miss the announcements because they're not important. You're walking just before the movie starts, and you sit down, you watch the movie, and if you see someone else you know, you might say, hi, and then you walk away and go home. That's not church. Church is opposite to that. Church is more like a sporting team. Church is more like when you turn up and someone's got to run the barbecue, and someone's got to run um, the drinks, and someone's got to Uh, do the 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 kit bag and someone's got to coach and someone's got to be captain on the field and someone's got to be those on the end of the end of the field waiting for the ball and and someone's we're all got a a part to play we're members of one another see what we have in church is even better than a sporting team though isn't it because a sporting team is all by performance but we serve by grace we love one another. We can deeply be involved in one another's lives. around the table of fellowship and hospitality, inviting people into our homes. Hospitality is deeply important and deeply means inviting people into your home. Not just hanging out and catching up, but actually welcoming people into your home life. And we can do this because of verses 9 to 13, we can love one another. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Why does the Apostle Paul we'll have to say, let love be genuine? Surely love is genuine. Well, because of the fallen world we live in and that you and I are fallen and sinful, here's what's easy to happen. Here's why we need these supernatural words. Because the word of the world is, it's okay if love is a little bit pretend. It's so easy, isn't it, for love not to be genuine, but to be staged, to have pretense, to have a face about it, so we're just nice to people on the outside. The word genuine here in verse 9, let love be genuine, is a word that literally means, let it be unhypocritical. Niceness can be a cover for beneath the surface sin. We can be polite to people on the outside, but plot against them on the inside. This is why we've seen at church camp that some of the one another's are that of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Now, at times people have asked, what does a holy kiss mean? Well, of course, for the first part of understanding a holy kiss, it's different to other types of kisses, so it's different to a marital kiss. If I was going to give a holy kiss to a brother in Christ, of course it would be different, wouldn't it? Some cultures have that kissing on the cheek as part of culture. But it's even more than that. What is a holy kiss? It's set apart for a purpose of one anothering for genuine love. And you can define a holy kiss with contrast. By this genuine love phrase here. What would be an unholy kiss? An unholy kiss would be a hypocritical kiss. So you can think of a hypocritical kiss as someone who perhaps kissed someone hypocritically, not with genuine love, with a niceness on the outside, but in their heart plotting against them. Who did that? Judas. Judas kisses with a hypocritical kiss, doesn't he? Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor in the US, uh, who since actually died this year, he wrote of this problem that can exist in churches when... And here's the quote, A veneer of pleasantness covers a spirit of backbiting, gossip, and prejudice. There is an absence of tough love in which people would love each other enough to confront problems and sins in themselves and their friends. See, we can often think, hypocritically, I'll address the problems in you and never actually address the problems in me. But instead we must abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We must be so annoyed with evil that we would hate evil itself and especially evil in ourselves. We'll only have genuine love for one another if we do this. For the grace given us and the person who is the measure of all that is good and all that is not good is Jesus. And Jesus is the measure of grace that God has given us by which the quantity of grace is unmeasured If we really believe the gospel of grace in Christ toward us, towards me, we'll believe Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the gospel actually does heart surgery on us. The gospel means we're able to not just be nice, for it's not just nicianity, but Christianity. It's not just like people who are like you, neglecting the ones you don't like. No, it's love people who are not like you. And maybe even if you don't like them, you love them. The gospel changes our life. It's a lifestyle of daily repentance and rejoicing in the grace given to us in Jesus. Which means, verse 10, we can love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. The church family is a family that gets to do that. See, doing one another in honor is not the culture generally in Australia. From those not from this country, who come to this country, or new to Australia, it's, it seems really actually awful to them that the way in which Australians often treat one another is not to honor one another, but make it a spectator sport to take others down. Even in circles and in front of other people. But to outdo one another in honor is to actually build them up, talk about them, honor them with grace. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. It's wonderful how in Romans, at the start of Romans, people once burned with passion for sin, Romans one twenty seven because they were serving themselves. And now because of the gospel of grace, we're now fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Romans 12, verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. People who rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer are those who have regular reliance on God. Contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13, seek to show hospitality. Someone who has once described hospitality as the process by which means an outsider's status has changed from stranger to guest. And that's why we have people over for meals, Not just coffee catch-ups, but in our homes. Because the church is Christ's family. We serve the church, love the church by being the church. This is one anothering for everyone. Because God first loved us, saved us, and gathered us in Christ. Jesus changes everything. And because Jesus changes everything, verse 5 of Romans 12 really does change things for our one anothering. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Being in Christ and members of his one body, the church, changes who we worship and shapes who we love. The church is not a club. See, a club exists for the fact that people belong to it because they have one thing they like and they tend to like one another with that one thing. But the church is a group of God's people chosen by God. The church is actually full of people I would never choose to be in a church necessarily and full of people that perhaps wouldn't choose me to be in their church necessarily. But God set his love on us and chose us. He chose us to be his and he chose us to belong to one another. And so reforming church, let's now see the opportunity before us to live out those things of Romans twelve three to 13 One anothering for everyone, by everyone. Yes, this includes elders, elders who shepherd the flock of God under our care. Yes, it includes other leaders of our church. But it actually includes everyone. One anothering for everyone. Full of those one anotherings that you do find in the new testament because we have been given grace unmeasured let's pray to god how gracious god our father in heaven you sent your son to the world to save us from sin death and judgment and to gather us for one another this is a beautiful picture of the church with all our problems, with all our sins, you give us all grace. Grace in Christ that we can then show grace and love to one another. We're asking now that this would be us. We know we'll always have problems and always have sin. We'll always have difficulty, trials and sufferings until Christ returns. And so we pray that those, even those, will be opportunities for us to grow in grace. For grace, not just to, of course, save us, but to teach us and train us, so shape us and change us. And please, as you do this work in us, change us to be more like Jesus, the one we belong to, as we are members of one another, belonging to one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.